1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm your host, Ben Page, and this is your source for hunting, outdoors, and conservation conversations. In an eclectic and sometimes unorganized fashion, I appreciate you coming by. All right, you ready? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, sounds good. All right, today I'm joined by, actually, I'm joining K-State professor, Dr. Adam Allers, that focuses mostly on adaptive management of wildfowl populations and their habitats. We were linked up through two separate People that told me that I needed to talk to you. How are you doing today, Adam? Good. Doing great. Yeah. Uh, this is my first time, I think, on K-State campus, which is nice. Uh, <laughs> Beautiful campus. Yeah. Actually, I take that back. I did. I almost came here. Uh, I was. This was on my list of uh, places, and I remember me and my dad came here, but I don't remember uh, any of the buildings or anything oh, like yeah. that. So there's a lot of, is it limestone? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Rock chalk or whatever they call yep. it, or that's that's K State, <laughs> that's, that's or KU, that's yeah, KU, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't say that too loud on campus. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> I'll keep it down. Um, so I know that uh, your bio says that you work a lot with hybrid cattails. Yes. Um, in Minnesota. Yes. Okay. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, we've got some research projects going on in northern Minnesota in Voyager's National Park along the Canadian border. Uh, there's an invasive hybrid cattail that's kind of taking over a lot of wetlands in the upper Midwest. Uh, Typha guaca is a scientific name. Uh, it's a lot different than other cattails, native cattails, in that it grows like really aggressively and expands really quickly. And when it establishes, it, it uh, removes all open water habitats, which are good for ducks and good for other wetland-dependent species. Um, and it just reduces all uh, diversity of native plants. And so we've got projects going on trying to figure out the best ways to manage those cattails and make sure they don't uh, encroach into other wetlands and then to find ways to create the best habitat for things like semi-aquatic mammals, for shorebirds, or uh, mark- secretive marsh birds, uh, amphibians, things like that. Well, that sounds kind of scary. Um, <laughs> where, where did that, what'd you call it? Uh, Typha guaca. Typha guaca. Where yeah. does it come from? So our native cattail, Typha latifolia, is a broadleaf cattail. 
Uh, there was an invasive that came over from Europe, Typha angustifolia, which is a narrow leaf cattail. And by itself, the invasive isn't really that bad. It kind of acts like a broadleaf cattail. But when the two hybridize, the hybrid species is super aggressive and drowns out a lot of the wetlands. And there's millions and millions of dollars being spent right now in the upper Midwest trying to control uh, the expansion of the invasive hybrid cattail. Is there a line um, that it's made its way south or not? No, it's, it's coming south. It's probably further south than we think it is because you really can't distinguish what it looks like. Uh, you generally need genetics to figure out if it's the aggressive one or if it's the, the native cattail. Um, it, it doesn't get much lower, I believe, than uh, central Minnesota right now. Uh, but it's probably further than than that. We just don't know it yet. Gotcha. And I, I guess we should back up here. Uh, what is your, you know, I talked a little bit about it, but what is your um, your lines of, you're a horticulturist? Is no, that, I'm not at all. Or what, what is it? <laughs> I'm in a funky uh, department, a really cool department, but it's a, I'm a wildlife biologist in a horticulture department. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I focus mostly on how, uh, uh, environmental changes impact wildlife populations, mostly their distributions and their population demographics. And uh, I teach classes that focus on wildlife and habitat management uh, within a horticulture department. Uh, but most of my research is focused on uh, how can we improve landscapes to have better wildlife populations. Got it. Got it. And uh, you're also uh, in your bio, it says that you work on uh, how carnivores adapt to land use change yep. in the ecoregion of the Flint Hills? Yeah, so uh, we have a couple ongoing projects looking at how urbanization can affect carnivores. So uh, there's a diverse carnivore community in the Great Plains. Uh, it includes a lot of things from coyotes to red foxes, gray foxes, swift foxes, badgers, uh, skunks, things like that. And we wanted to see how uh, landscape change, mostly urbanization and agriculture, will affect um, uh, or will impact uh, if a carnivore decides to be there or what the carnivore community looks like once the landscape starts getting eat up, eaten up by urbanization and agriculture. Now, talking about, you know, the, the Southern Plains and then the Flint Hills. Yep. Um, so I've, I've been living here in the Flint Hills for, yep. you know, two years now. And I've always kind of had this question of, okay, what, you know, what really defines the Flint Hills? And when I think of the Flint Hills, I think of little micro, um, Habitats like just west of town here, yep. the elevation. Oh, yeah. That's what I think of is you know the Flint Hills. Yep. But what? How do you define the Flint Hills? Well, I mean the Flint Hills is is essentially what we call the remaining uh, last remaining contiguous piece of tall grass prairie in North America. One of the biggest ones. Uh, most of the prairie in North America is gone uh, right now, mostly because of agriculture and other things. Uh, but we have this big holdout that happens throughout uh, east central Kansas and all the way down to the tip of Oklahoma. And the reason it's like that is because it's so rocky here and people couldn't plow it. And so essentially that left grass. Um, and so that's what our flint hills are now. Gotcha. So it's basically unplowable. So I was completely wrong. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some other geological characteristics <laughs> that I'm not aware of. But what what is with that area over there? Uh, and I know there's a couple smaller like uh, you know outcroppings where it's just these you know these ele- oh on the west side of town? yeah yeah I think uh, historically the river cut through there and just yeah. cut those uh, those deep uh, ditches and valleys. And yeah. That's what was left. That's nuts. Um, yeah. But anyways, okay, talking a little bit about um, your storyline. Uh, we have something in common and that we both grew up in Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so are you, are you still a Husker fan? I'm a huge Husker fan. Okay, good. Good deal. Good deal. So you're really excited, uh, for our 
what it hopefully should be a nine win season this year, right? Hopefully above fifty percent. That's I've what got I'm shooting for. I've, well, above fifty percent. I've got like <laughs> two hundred bucks somewhere out of, out of everybody that I've been talking to about how we're going to have nine wins this yeah. year. I said that last year and got burnt, so oh, I'm yeah. tempering it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> My I keep telling people I say, hey, uh, you know, by two thousand twenty three. We will be in the national championship. We okay. won't win it, yeah, but we'll be at least in it. Like I'll put my money there. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so you grew up in Nebraska, yep. um, hunting and fishing, I, I, did. I yep. presume. Yep. So, uh, and then uh, what? What did you do? How did you? How did you wind up to where you are here today? Oh, it's a winding path. It yes. really is. It's not a, a straight line, to be honest. Uh, so I grew up on a farm ranch in northeast Nebraska along the Elkhorn River. Uh, spent a lot of time hunting and fishing and, and doing whatever, you know, farm boys did back then. Uh, went to college for a while. Wasn't very good at it, to be honest with you. So I started working for uh, natural resources districts in Nebraska. Um, did that for a while. And uh, I was in a little small town working. There was like maybe 50 people. And I was 22, 23 years old. Yeah. And I thought I needed something a little more exciting. So I joined the Army. Um, and I uh, spent a few years there, uh, decided that uh, I wasn't very good at that either. <laughs> and so uh, I decided to go back to college and I went back to college uh, and got a bachelor's in, in biological sciences, then a master's in, in environmental, natural resources, environmental sciences, then a, a PhD in the same thing. And then a uh, job opened up in Kansas and that's where I'm at now. Awesome. Uh, and so as far as, you know, academia, what's some of the, the stuff that you've worked on uh, throughout your, because, well, I mean, how long, I guess, have you been, would you consider yourself to be, have been in academia? Oh, uh, probably like 2007. So I'm, you know, almost pushing 15 years now, uh, yeah. which is crazy to say out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, mostly it, it's dealt with uh, how wetland dependent species like uh, semi-aquatic mammals and now waterfowl. Uh, are impacted by changes to the landscape. So I lived in Illinois for 10 years while I was going to grad school. Uh, my wife was from there. And that's kind of the, the, the poster child for what can happen when we don't take care of our wetlands. So uh, Illinois, if you're not familiar with it, uh, used to be covered in wetlands. Right? In fact, when the settlers moved through there, they used to call it the dismal swamp, the malaria infested swamp, because they didn't want anybody to stop there because it was just mosquitoes and wetlands. Now, less than 1% of the landscape is wetlands, is all agriculture and ur in Chicago, so urbanization also. Right. Uh, and so we've lost a lot of you know, connectivity for species. We've lost a lot of species in general. And, uh, and that's just from a couple of different landscape changes, but they've been pretty pervasive and widespread. And so I've spent most of my time trying to figure out, how, one, how wildlife respond to those changes, and two, uh, how can we mitigate those, those changes and make sure that uh, we're not hurting wildlife populations as, as much as they could be, I guess. And, and uh, you know, that research, what does that manifest into practically? Uh, what's the output from that? Uh, so it essentially gives state managers and federal wildlife managers uh, kind of uh, a way forward. So this is the science behind what we can do to actually improve wildlife populations in these areas, right? And there's no real world where we're ever going to get rid of, uh, you know, cornfields or we're ever going to slow down the growth of cities. Right. But how do we manage populations knowing that that's going to go forward anyway? What's the best way to do it to, to get the most bang for your buck and increase population growth and populations? And then you just take a, you know, what, what's, can you give me any uh, sort of uh, real life tools that you've maybe provided some? Uh, I mean, mostly models essentially. Yeah. So uh, um, that's one of the bad parts of being an ac academic is that you create these things, give them to people. And 
Uh, maybe four or five people might look at it, <laughs> to be honest with you. Actually, I think more people have read my writings that have been in, in popular articles and things and actually been my scientific publications. Um, but uh, so, for instance, the, you mentioned the Flint Hills Carnivore uh, uh, Project. My grad student, uh, Kyle, just finished it up and the city of Manhattan is using that information to try to create new parks in Manhattan. So someone read it somewhere. Right. <laughs> They're trying to use it for something. Good. Good. And then, I, you know, the Minnesota, uh, the, the cattail stuff, that's uh, directly applicable to management up there. So the people that are managing the cattails, the National Park Service where we're working, is going to take this information to move forward and how they're going to better manage those cattails in the future. Awesome. Uh, I don't know. Uh, is bobcats on your list there of predators? for? Uh, they're, yeah, they're carnivores that you yeah, yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah because I, I just I just pulled some, uh, some of my, my memory cards from my trail cams oh, yeah. out, out uh, west of town. and. I have, there's a family of bobcats out oh, there, yeah. so pretty. Yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, I've never I've never seen them on a uh, um, a game cam before. Oh, really? out, you know, so I was I was like, oh, that's interesting. No, so. When we were doing the stuff in Manhattan, there was uh, a couple of them hanging out behind the Redinas on Claflin all the time. So <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. They're around. We just don't see them. Yeah, what's crazy? So I have uh, one of those conservation easements uh, that's behind my house. Oh, okay. Where it's you know there's 50 yards between me and the 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 next house. Yeah. Um, and I pay taxes on it. Uh, but I, you know, you can't no, put right. anything or build yeah. anything back there. And, and that, I feel like there's a lot of those, um, in like inside the city limits of Manhattan. There could be. Yeah. yeah and I, sure. I just wonder like, you know, I w- I've always been, maybe I'll throw a, a camera back there and see what I see. But <laughs> well, we just, we were uh, going to Western Kansas the other morning. My, my wife was in Europe. And so I had my two daughters with me and we got in the car at five o'clock in the morning to head to a research project out in Western Kansas. And. We're driving out, and then a young coyote went running across the road in front of my house in the middle of Manhattan. So they're here. We just yeah. don't see them. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Um, how would you define the millennial hunter? Uh, nobody can. That's the problem. So, uh, you know, millennial is a huge span, right? I'm 42 years old. I think uh, the cutoff for millennials is 40 years old and so they're is it really yeah yeah and so that's where the start of the millennial population was and then it all goes all the way down to i think what 20 years old now or something is the sure and whatever the next generation is after that i'm not sure yeah is the kid that just yelled at me for parking in his been, fraternity yeah. is he a millennial he's, what's 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 I don't know. yeah what's newer there's than a millennial there's, there's actually a cutoff i know that we have faculty in the department here that are millennials mm-hmm. um and so it's a huge range of people right uh me that grew up you know with uh you know playing atari right and now there's still millennials that were you know playing xbox or whatever the the new thing newfangled thing is that kids play but anyway yeah you can't define it and so that's the problem people have is they try to they try to get a pinpoint definition of something and and we know that people that uh what we call millennials anyway uh occupy this huge gradient of ideas and beliefs and how they interact with uh, wildlife and how they view hunting uh so it's it's a moving target in the sense that you can't just uh, find a single definition and attribute it to a group, but there's a, a hundreds of them. And I guess I'll be a uh, a lazy uh, conservation, yeah. uh, excuse me, conversationalist here. But uh, could you maybe explain to the listeners why I would ask you that question? Yeah, well, so we've been doing some research trying to figure out what's the best way, um, uh, specifically, to bring college students into hunting, um, and it, it's not just kind of a um, a silly question like I like hunters and I like hunting but uh, there's, there's a reason behind it so the biggest conservation funding mechanism in, in North America right now is hunters right we spend more money uh, through the Pittman Robertson Act uh, specifically and the uh, federal duck stamp and, and things like that 
uh, that goes uh, right back into conservation. So uh, if we lose hunters in the, in the future, which is what it looks like it's going to happen, we're going to lose all that money that's being paid in excise taxes on firearms and ammunition and archery equipment and waterfowl stamps and things. And that's just going to die with the hunter if, if, if we can't recruit people to the population. I think, uh, and I've, I've looked at some of the, the source data on, you know, uh, permits and um, hunting licenses sold. And I think sometimes people can be confused by the data that's out there. Yeah. Uh, me and Ian uh, Burrow were actually just talking about this uh, the other night on a podcast that aired this morning mm-hmm. about the parable about you know, declining hunting numbers, yeah. uh, but perceived increased uh, public land utilization due yeah. to the constriction of where people can hunt. Yeah. And then newer hunters basically being forced uh, to hunt on public land because yeah. they don't they don't really have the skills to go out and, and gain private land permission yeah. and, and things of that nature. And they kind of take the, the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to public yeah. land utilization. Yeah, I wouldn't call it the lowest hanging fruit because there's some really good quality public land that nobody touches, especially like around Manhattan. Right? There's, I've been in areas uh, uh, like two years ago, I remember the last day of duck season, I brought my wife out and to huge marshes uh, north of town and there was, you know, tens of thousands of ducks on them and we were the only people out there on, you know, 160 acres of marsh. And so all public ground, uh, it's just that people um, either perceive that it's low hanging fruit or uh, they're just too lazy to go out. Uh, it could be a lot of things, but you know, there is a lot of good quality public ground around that people just don't take advantage of. Right. Right. Um, and so when we talk about a little bit about some, I've read through some of your works um, and you were talking about how R3 and if people aren't familiar with R3, that's re- recruitment, retention and reactivation of uh, hunters. Um and how they're overlooking the college campus. Yeah. Um, and you want to talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done with that? Yeah. So um, we had this idea that, well, maybe uh, we have this group of students or a group of people that uh, are open to new ideas. Um, maybe just haven't been introduced to some of these things. And that'd be a good population to really hammer marketing efforts down to. Um, and uh, Lincoln Larson, a guy from North Carolina State University, kind of conceived this idea. and got a bunch of universities on board, one of them being K-State. And that we would, you know, survey students and figure out what their ideas were about hunting or what their attitudes were about hunting and what stopped them from hunting specifically, why they weren't doing it. Uh, And then we did some workshops where we actually took non-hunting college students out and taught them things like uh, how to look for sign, what to look for, um, conservation and hunting, which is my, my, my big aspect um, we actually brought pheasants out there and had them clean pheasants to show them that, you know, once you do harvest something, here's what you do with it. And sure. we had a wild game feed during it. So this is how you cook it. So we went through the whole process. Um, and then we're going to survey people again afterwards and see you know, if their ideas have changed or if they actually utilize that information and went out hunting afterwards. Um, but we found some surprising things. Um, you know, most people, uh, surprisingly to me, uh, most college students were actually uh, had a positive view of hunting and they would like to do it but there's a bunch of barriers to it that they just uh, can't get over right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what were some of those, the barriers identified? Well, one of them was, uh, you know, what do we do with something now we've, we've, we've shot it. Right. So let's say we, my first hunt was a white tailed deer. You know, you, you go through this whole hunt and you harvest a white tailed deer, then you walk up to it and you're like, now what do I do? <laughs> right. If no one's there to actually mentor you through the process, you know, it's a daunting process. Even a squirrel or a rabbit is daunting if you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And then once you do 
uh, butcher it, you know, what do you do with it afterwards, right? So how do you cook something that's, you know, not uh, a cheeseburger? And so that was, that was there's, those are simple, what you'd think, uh, um, not really obstacles, especially if you grew up hunting or been around this stuff. But for people that have never done it before, it creates a huge obstacle. Yeah. One, you know, kind of, you kind of sparked a conversation that my wife, uh, she was, she grew up a city girl, yep. never been hunting and whatnot. And I took her out hunting. And when we went, you know, to clean it, she was not that, uh, she was, she was interested mm-hmm. in what was going on. And she's like, I really did think that there was going to be this really big, um, icky factor. Oh yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yep. And uh she said, but when you started doing all the stuff that you were doing, yep. there was there wasn't an icky factor. It was more I realized, okay, it's a technical factor. Mm-hmm. What you're doing right now is a very learned thing yeah. um or practiced thing. Yep. And uh she's like, but I think I kind of thought it was gross. Mm-hmm. Um like in my mind before we went out to this, I said, "Oh, the biggest part would be for me. It's gross to oh, do yeah. that." But the after seeing it, it's really more like, oh, wow, it's not gross. Yep. It's difficult. Yep. Uh, and I, I guess, uh, did you guys see anything with like the icky factor versus the technical factor? No, actually. Uh, so when we were doing our, on our workshop, we were walking students through uh, cleaning pheasants. And I thought the same thing, that they would just, you know, go, oh, this is going to be disgusting. But, you know, I, I demonstrated it, walked through it, and then everybody realized that, oh, you know, once the feathers are off, it looks like a chicken, right? And so, right. Cutting through it was not that big a deal. Maybe a deer would be something else. There's always this mm. uh, weird effect where mammals, unless it's some a different response than birds do, right? right. But uh, yeah, for sure. I, I'm guessing that that's probably one of the things people think butchering a deer is like uh, the end of the movie Fargo, like dumping <laughs> someone in a wood chipper, right? He's <laughs> going yeah. everywhere, and it's yeah. not that messy, <laughs> right? Yeah, that was. She said that she was very surprised by the amount of yeah. you know blood that there that was not there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. Another thing I think that uh, you, you kind of hinted at earlier, um, perceptions mm-hmm. of hunting. What did you guys start off with? What was, was there anything interesting about the perception of hunting? I know you said that you were surprised to see that actually people were kind of open to it. Yeah. Um, well, I would have expected that college students that had never been hunting before would have had a bad perception of hunting. Uh, I mean, there's – when you see hunting mentioned in the media anywhere nowadays um, – it's not painted in a very good light most of the time. Uh, and maybe I'm just because I, I, I can pick that stuff out pretty easily. But, uh, and so I was expecting a lot of that to kind of fall down on, on students also, especially uh, people that were just coming up in, into college. Uh, but it wasn't that way, right? The majority of students actually thought that, you know, hunting was a, a viable activity and that uh, they would like to do it, but there's just no way, no one showed them how. Were there any perceptions of hunters or just the... Cause I, I, no, not really. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there are everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody has this idea that uh, hunters, not everybody, but, you know, the negative uh, connotations are we're driving around in jacked up 83 Chevys, right? <laughs> Blasting Freebird and killing everything. That's sure. a bias, right? Yep. I'm sure maybe that happens with some people, but yeah. that's not the hunting population overall. Right, right. Yeah, I was uh, in, in college. Uh, I remember that there'd be times where I was like, oh, I should wear my... Uh, I'm going to this class. Yeah. I'm not going to wear my my oh, uh, yeah. my duck hunting coat yeah. or my you know my deer hunting coat because yeah. uh, I don't know what they're. You well, know. it's different too. So Kansas State is a, a lot different. So I, I mentioned I came from Illinois. Um, I was there for the last ten years, and nobody, you know, I, I was there for ten years. And I met only a handful of hunters, right? And nobody ever looked like they were, you know, what you would think a Kansas State student looked like. You see more camel walking across campus sure. than you do other things. Yeah. Um, 
So it depends on the region, too, where you're from. Now, uh, talking a little bit about camo on Kansas State, mm-hmm. uh, you guys have a pretty interesting program here. Uh, I believe it's unique to Kansas State, correct? Uh, to the world, actually. Um, well, I take that back. Auburn just uh, started a program like ours, essentially a copy and paste curriculum. Uh, yeah, so it's unique in the fact that uh, it's not a normal wildlife biology program, um, and it's not a, a normal business program. It's, a, it's a, a mix of the two. So it's a wildlife outdoor enterprise management. And uh, the students coming through here, it's a selective admissions process, and students are interested in uh, how they can actually um, make money in a business sense when they leave Kansas State University uh, around the hunting, fishing industry, outdoor sports industry, the shooting sports industry, uh, the whole gamut of just outdoor sports and how they can make money. Uh, now, that. when I hear that, uh, just first off, and just to be completely honest, it sounds like, oh, guide school 101. Yeah. And that, you, you know, know, I get people out of that right away. So whenever students come to my desk and it's a selective admissions process, they have to talk to us. And the first thing I say is that this is not a hunting degree, right? This is not, if you want to be an elk guide, don't come to college, right? That, there's no reason to spend <laughs> Yeah, just go, go out to Colorado. West. Yeah, go out west. Um, our, our job is to create leaders, right? And people that are, uh, uh, one, know what uh, some of the conservation's pros and cons are of hunting, um, how to better produce wildlife populations on your property and be conscious as a hunter uh, of what you're doing to the environment and uh, how you can actually benefit and make some money uh, while you're here. What are some of the, uh, you know, specific... Um, coursework or, uh, you know, what do you, what do you teach these people? So I teach a a few things. So I teach waterfowl, uh, and wetlands management, which is a course that, uh, uh, essentially starts students off appreciating the diversity of waterfowl we have in North America and some of South America also, um, how hunting activities can positively and negatively impact waterfowl populations, uh, how we can better manage wetlands, uh, for waterfowl and for other wetland dependent species. And then a host of other things uh, like uh, some wetlands laws uh, that keep changing, it seems like. And then, um, yeah, it essentially touches on everything wetland and waterfowl related. I've taught upland game bird management and big game management in the past. I mentioned before to you that I'm teaching a, uh, a rifle ballistics course in New Mexico. It's a one credit hour course for students that have never really been around uh, rifles and handguns before. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of things, actually. That's that's very interesting to to hear that you know that's a that's a very interesting program. You said Auburn has now stood one up as well. Yeah, yep, they have. So they I think they started either last year or the year before, and so they're kind of doing the same thing we are. Uh, so the hunting industry is huge, right? There's you know fifty eight billion dollars or something like that. I'm not sure what the exact number is. Uh, so it's a huge market, and uh, there wasn't really uh, a training program like a formal university training program that would you know put students into those places to be able to capitalize on those niche markets and that's kind of what we're doing okay help me out with um understanding what this means uh wetlands Mm -hmm. and human nominated landscapes human dominated landscapes is it human dominated yeah human dominated what a difference that an n (laughs) and a d makes yeah yeah human dominated so uh like i mentioned illinois right is uh, a human dominated landscape and how does that impact wetlands and everything that lives within wetlands yeah that you know i i don't know if I cop or transpose that wrong, or if it was written somewhere wrong. But I thought human-nominated landscapes. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, human-dominated yeah. landscape that makes a lot more sense. Okay, good. Okay, part of uh, actually, can you help me identify this? Um, you asked people 
about where the funds from the Duck Stamp goes. Yeah. Um, so myself, uh, well, Craig Miller led the project actually from the Illinois Natural History Survey. Uh, we were interested in if, so I, let me back up a little bit. Hunters uh, essentially fund wildlife conservation in North America. Almost a lot of the projects that go forward to conserve wildlife populations uh, are uh, on the backs of hunters. We pay a lot of money uh, through excise taxes and through things like federal duck stamp and state duck stamps. And we were just kind of curious, you know, um, this is happening. We know this, but the hunters know this. Right? And so uh, we just wanted to see if hunters, waterfowl hunters specifically, knew where their money was going. Uh, that was the title of the paper, Where Does Your Money Go? Yeah. Um, and overwhelmingly, most hunters don't have a clue where their money goes, right? They think that it's some sort of tax that goes to either improve roads or goes to administrator salaries, but they don't realize that almost 100% of that money goes into wetland conservation and creation. Um, so that what is it, the federal duck stamp this year, $25? I think, it I think it's 27 $27, that's right. I think twenty-seven uh, fifty or something. Or something. Yes. Yeah, so... Uh, almost all that money goes directly to improving and creating wetland habitat, which is unheard of. That's just a lot of money that just gets dumped and is not, you know, picked apart by administrators as it goes along the line. It sure. goes right into an impactful conservation measure. They just pick up all the admin costs somewhere else. And yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's interesting. Um, and what was, why was that, uh, why, why'd you write that paper? Well, so if you talk to people that, uh, are really into hunting and they're trying to justify why they hunt, right? They say, Oh, well, you know, we spend money for ducks or we spend money for something. And this is what, you know, uh, this justifies what we're doing. Uh, but the sad part is that hunters really don't know. Right. And it's not a, a hard guess or a hard search on Google to see where your money goes. It's just, I think people have been paying this for so long that they just don't think about where it goes. Ignorantly benevolent. Yeah. And so, you know, I teach these classes and, I run into students that are hunters, you know, you know, vast majority of my students are hunters. And I mentioned Pittman-Robertson, they have no clue that, you know, whenever they buy a shotgun, 10% of that cost goes right to the Pittman-Robertson fund, which goes to fund wildlife conservation. Or when they buy a box of ammo, 10% of that money they pay out of their pockets. It doesn't show up on your receipt, but it goes right into conservation. And so they don't realize how much money they're spending each year on guns and ammo and arrows and bows and things like that. That's a huge portion of it is going into wildlife conservation. Why is it important um, for them to not be ignorant of that? For them, you know, these same kids probably, you know, would continue uh, their arc Mm -hmm. and they'd just be hunters for the rest of their lives maybe. Um, Why is it so important um, that they know all that? Well, it's important that everybody knows. So, you know, when when there's a conversation about is is hunting uh, a worthwhile activity, should we be doing it in, you know, the century now? Um, is it an archaic means of having fun or something, right? If people knew how much money was actually being spent and going towards uh, conservation, they would think differently. Um, if we actually lost, uh, you know, more hunters, if we continue an exponential decline of hunters, right, that conservation money goes with it, right? And so if hunters don't know they spend money or where it goes, there's no way the general public has a clue where it goes. Yeah. So, so we're starting with the people that actually spend it. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, you know, you just get close to the decade here yeah. uh, on current trends. Yeah. What, which decade are you scared of for hunting? Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Uh, if you look at the trend, it's, it's, it, it's pretty striking. Um, but 
I mean, right now is it's, it's gets scary for me, um, and the fact that um, people just don't seem as uh, concerned of what will happen if if hunting is uh, not on the landscape. Essentially, if there aren't people that are buying uh, twenty dollars boxes of waterfowl loads or buying a new shotgun every couple of years or spending money and gas to go travel to hunt, that this is going to take a huge hit on conservation if that happens. Yeah. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's really terrifying too, that, um, you know, you were ta- just talking about the importance, even hunters don't know that. Mm-hmm. And so then how could we ever expect non hunters or people that are yeah. against hunting, which I've always said that the people that are vehemently against mm-hmm. hunting, they're not the enemy. Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the largest part of the bell curve that mm-hmm. is actually like the people that don't care yeah. either way. They're the ones that are the most danger to hunting. Yeah. And I think it's all an information gap. I think if people knew exactly how much money goes into conservation from hunting activities, um, it would change a lot of minds or at least keep people informed. So when they go to vote on things that impact hunting, they would at least have that in mind. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of hunting nowadays, we hear about trophy hunters, right? And the first thing that comes to people's minds is going to Africa and, and shooting a lion or something. That's not the majority of hunters, right? The majority of hunters are sitting in a marsh for eight hours and then harvesting one blueing teal. Right? So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot different than what is in people's minds. Uh, but again, it's all of an information gap thing that needs to be filled. Okay. Speaking of trophy hunting, mm-hmm. waterfowl and watercolor. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you got there. Uh, so I was concerned that, um, well, one thing, we know that waterfowl hunters overall don't know how to identify ducks, right? Um, we did a study not too long ago where we were looking at avid waterfowl hunters and their ability to identify waterfowl. And I was super concerned that you were going to bring me in here and okay. pull up pictures like, Ooh, is this a lesser or a greater yeah. scop? I don't know. <laughs> you know? But yeah, so uh, that, that happens across the board. And uh, you know, I have students in my waterfowl and wetland management class that were duck hunters and then couldn't identify ducks. They didn't know what a hen pintail was some, in some instances. So, and, you know, as an instructor, you teach them and teach them and teach people and you show them pictures and you show them stuffed specimens and you go to the field and show them and it still doesn't ring true, right? They can't, you know, pick out what it is. And, and my idea was with this waterfowl watercolor uh, assignment was to just make students concentrate on a phenotypic trait of a species like the, the, um, the green speculum on a, on a uh, pintail, right? That they can concentrate on something like that and repetitive, repetitively paint it with a waterfowl color or with a watercolor that might actually increase their, their learning. And it did. And so we did this with a bunch of different species and we found that students that actually did this watercolor assignment and focused on those traits, they were better able to remember those later and then be able to identify what ducks were what. What's the most misidentified duck? Lesser scout. Lesser scout. <laughs> Why? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, and it's probably region dependent. Uh, people get lesser scout confused with ringnecks all the time, especially hens. Uh, and I, I can't remember the exact number, so but it's above 50% of hunters that we surveyed, the experienced hunters, didn't know what a lesser scout hen was. Um, and I, I think it could be the fact that people don't... And, you know, in, in the central flyway, see a lot of lesser scop. Right. And I see a lot of ringnecks, but again, they have a hard time picking it out. And I tell the story all the time that I used to hunt with a guy that had uh, been hunting for 20 years. And we were hunting one day and uh, uh, ducks came in and he shot one. And he went to pick it up and I asked, well, what, what is it? 
I said, it's a gadwall. And I could clearly see it was a hand shoveler. And I didn't say anything. I thought it was a mis he misspoke or something. And another group of ducks came in and he pulled one out of the group. And so what'd you get? The gadwall and it was a hand shoveler. And so that got us thinking about, you know, what else are people uh, you know, missing with this? And, it's, and most of the time it's not a big deal. But when you talk about the difference between a, a hen ring neck and a lesser scot, right? I've actually seen people that have uh, come with a, a, a game strap full of uh, bluebills, six bluebills, and thinking they were all ring necks. And so you're already three times over the limit right there. Yeah, that's, so. yeah, that's not good. Um, I want your opinion on something. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a late onset waterfowl hunter, yeah. and uh, I had a you know, I had a hard time identifying birds on the yeah. wing. I knew how important it was because I, I already had a foundation of knowing, mm -hmm. like, okay, we respect the rules and you, you got to know what you're shooting at. Um, but I'd never seen one on the wing or anything on the wing before. Yeah. And so I went out there and I said, okay, um, what's my most restrictive limit? Uh, and I, this is kind of what I teach to people. I said, uh, look at your most restrictive limit. Let's say this year it's uh, pintails. Yep. It is this year, actually. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> it's true. Uh, so you go out there. You can tell the difference. Okay, now you can tell the difference between big ducks and teal. So you're good there. Yeah, you know that's a pretty quick one. First one, probably anybody learns. Most of the time, you think so. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, so you can shoot two pintails. Yeah. Uh, at a time. So the most ducks that you can shoot is is uh, two ducks. Mm -hmm. So boom, boom. That's all you get. Okay, you're down two ducks. Yeah. You're a better uh, shot than you are a uh, <laughs> yeah. identifier of uh, game species. And you pull you pull them up. One's a. Uh, um, you know, let's, let's call it a ring neck. Mm -hmm. And one is a, a head pintail. Now you've identified them using your book. So you say, okay, one. Now my most restrictive thing is I can only shoot one more pintail. Yep. So I can't shoot it anymore. And that gives people like reps yep. on seeing, you know, still being able to participate in the hunt and still trying to get practice on oh, identifying yeah. things in the way. What's your opinion of that? Yep. Um, it's a good opinion. This year, pintails won. So... Is it pintails one now? Uh, this year? Yeah, so, so yeah. it's going to be harder this time. Uh, if if you're unsure, um, just don't shoot. That's my 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 take on it all. If you're going out with a bunch of people that don't know how to ID ducks, just be very careful and don't shoot until feet are down. Right. Right. Um, or let them land on the decoys and then scare them out and then shoot them once you've figured out what they were. Don't right. go shooting six pintail hens and thinking they're gadwalls. That's the worst <laughs> thing you can do. Right. Um, so. It, my, my, my sense is if you don't really have a good idea of what waterfowl uh, species are, go with somebody that does, right? Um, and then ask them, right? Don't, don't be uh, uh, too cocky to, to ask someone and let them know that, hey, I don't know what those are, right? Right. Figure out what it is. Because, uh, you know, the sooner you start learning, right, that you'll start enjoying it more. I get more of a kick out of uh, getting a limit of ducks and every single one of them is a different species, right? right. I yeah. love that. I, I, I would take uh, a six duck limit of you know a widgeon a pintail a canvasback a redhead and everything else over a, a full limit of mallards any day and so i get a kick out of it because i, I probably appreciate you know waterfowl uh diversity a little more what was your last misidentified duck do you remember it uh let's see um oh my gosh i don't uh let me think let me think let me think let me think no, I don't. You know what? No, I do. Actually, I think it was probably I was hunting in Emaquan uh, in Illinois. This is back, you know, a long time ago. And I shot a hen pintail and I, I didn't know what it was at the time. And uh, 
Yeah, that's what it was. Hemp and tail. And I asked somebody about it and they ribbed me about it. <laughs> that's good. And so that's what, but it was uh, a hemp and tail. Yeah. 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 I think my most blatant one was a cinnamon teal. Oh, really? That'd be a yeah. hard one though. Well, it was my first season. Yeah. Like that was my most blatant one. Yeah. I won't say it was my last. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I said, man, this is a weird looking teal. I sent it to my digital mentor. Yeah. Um, and he, he knew that I really like, you know, was, I'd go home and I'd pick the birds out real yeah. quick. He called me. I had like three missed phone calls from him. He's like, do not breast that bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, yeah. I mean, cinnamon teal are hard, especially not like in Cheyenne bottoms, right? There's cinnamon teal nesting out there, but you know, when teal season comes up, they look just like blue and teal. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So talking a little bit about some of uh, your extracurricular mentorship that you've, you've done. Um, I know that you've been a little bit involved with BHA here on campus. Is that correct? Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah just a little bit. I helped Ian out with some things and actually, um, I shouldn't say helped him out. Ian had it all under control, right? Uh, but him and I talked about some things a lot. Uh, and um, yeah, so I've been kind of on the sideline. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and then uh, kind of breaking off here a little bit um, to kind of get the story of your waterfowl hunting like progression. Mm-hmm. Were you hunting waterfowl when you were growing up in Northeast Nebraska? No, not really. Yeah. No. Um and I take that as something that, so in Northeast Nebraska, there's ducks everywhere, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't that novel to see ducks. And it was just, they were everywhere. It took me moving to Illinois, essentially, to realize that there's not a lot of ducks to go, well, wait a second. I think I, I need to jump into this a little more. And I had some colleagues that I worked with uh, that were waterfowl biologists that took me out. And I mentioned a hemp and tail nemaquan that was with them. Um, and so I started appreciating it more and more and more. Uh, that way. And again, you have to move away from it to appreciate it, what you've lost. Sure. And that's kind of where it really picked up with me when I was in Illinois um, in the early 2000s. Awesome. I was more of a pheasant hunter, quail hunter in, in Nebraska. Yeah. Well, I haven't shot a wild uh, Nebraska pheasant since I was, I think, 10. Yeah. I haven't so. shot. This sad, but I haven't shot one since, I think, 2009 or 10. Yeah. yeah. So My buddy owns one of those pheasant ranches, yep. you know. Good, but that's the only yep. pheasant hunting I've had in Nebraska. Yep. So, um, okay. What's the out of all of your research and all the stuff that you you know devote your life to? What is the so what in the way forward? Like, what do we what do we have to do for to, to make sure that uh, my daughter has more uh, public land access and access to game um, than I do? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it's really hard. I got two daughters at home too. And I think about that all the time. Um, there was a crazy statistic that came out a few years ago that showed that every generation explores only 9% of what their parents explored or had a chance to explore. So if you think about what your father and mother were doing, you know, before you were born and compare that what you did when you were born and that loss of time outdoors, right? That's huge. And uh, I think about it with myself and my father and grandfather and my daughters. And I sort of force myself to put my daughters outside. And the only way that we're going to have things like wetlands uh, in the future is if our children are going out and appreciate them now. Because in 15 years, they can vote. And then that's where the changes are going to happen. It's not going to be, there's not going to be an instance where 
someone's going to go through and just wipe out all the wetlands on Earth, right? It happens very, very small, yeah. little increments here and there, and, and, and then before we know it, they're gone. And so there has to be ways to, to conserve wetlands and wildlife populations, and it's going to have to be with our young kids appreciating what we have now, and then hopefully they can take the reins from there. I've always found it so weird, um, and maybe it's because we don't articulate it well as mm-hmm. um, hunters um, or people that are speaking about wetlands, um, wetlands aren't just important to waterfowl hunters. No, no, yeah, everything. And my wetland class, I talk about that all the time. There's so many aspects of the hurricanes we're seeing, you know, uh, like in Southeast Asia, uh, for every, uh, I can't remember what the exact number is, but uh, you can reduce the, uh, the impact of hurricanes just by adding feet of mangroves that were used to be there, but they're gone now. Um, by the, the Gulf Coast, you know, we keep losing wetland and wetland, wetland acres all the time, and that increases the impact of hurricanes all the time. Uh, disease transmissions into waterways happen because we lose wetlands. Wetlands are essentially natu- natural uh, sponges that soak up all the bad things uh, before they can reach our aquifers and before they can reach our river systems that will dump into, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. Wetlands take care of all of that. Uh, but when we lose all that, then we lose all that ability to actually um, create healthy water systems. I think, you know, it's really important that we, you know, sing the rhetoric of doom and gloom mm-hmm. when it comes to conservation and stuff. Yeah, I need to up to a point, um, except that, you know, after a while, it can just be droning on and on and people just don't care. Yeah. What's the what's the shiny gem in the dark, though, um, for yeah. you right now? Yeah. Uh, you know... I don't know. I, I see a lot of uh, improvements with people's mindset on public land access now, uh, more so than there was five years ago. Uh, I see a lot of people that are becoming really in tune with the idea that, you know, public land could be gone sometime and and that would be horrible for us. Uh, one of the gems I see now is, you know, my daughters are really interested in things like um, wildlife and they're, they're really in tune to different species and things. And so, um, whenever they get excited about it, I get excited about it because I know that, you know, the other generation is probably caring too. Right. So, um, you know, being a father, you, you said your kids are like three or four, six and eight, six and eight. Yeah. So, you know, you're six, you're, you're five and seven years ahead of me or whatever it yeah. is. Uh, what's some, what's some advice you have for fatherhood in the outdoors? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, don't take them out when it's just a hot mosquito vest because I'll never want to go out again. Okay. Uh, if you take them outside to go hunting or something, make sure it's, October, November, you know, 60 degree yeah. day. Temperate, uh, not cold, but no yeah, bugs. Yeah. And it's beautiful outside and that you hype it up as much as you can before you go out. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, and all kids are different. You know, my youngest daughter is the, is going to love it when she can just get ankle deep into a deer and help me pull guts out. My oldest daughter, not so much. And so just kind of <laughs> tempering that and uh, knowing what they expect and then not kind of ruin it for them. <laughs> Nice, nice. Yeah. Have you had have you had any near misses with ruining things? Um, yeah, I always push the envelope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they were in Minnesota with me a couple of weeks, or actually a month ago now, uh, and I got introduced to leeches for the first time just by picking them off their body. So, <laughs> oh no, precursor on to what a leech was. Yeah, maybe. yeah, they had no clue until they were picking these things that were stuck on their. Legs. Mom was thrilled. I'm sure. Mom was thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You only get to have one more hunt. Yeah in your life hmm. describe it you get to you get to choose how it is you know whether what you're hunting oh, wow. who you're with where you're at one more hunt in my life would be a uh late season open ice elkhorn river hunt in nebraska uh when the the 
not the big mallard push is happening, but we're seeing pintails and widgeon and gadwall and teal and some some early divers. That would be my my last hunt. Who's with you? My dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Well, Adam, I, I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave um, the listeners of the foul front with uh, as far as, hey, you should go look into this kind of thing or you should go, um, you know, if you want to lo- know more um, about some of the, the work that you're doing, what would you like to leave them with? Um, that, you know, it's, it's better to, if you have questions about something, just Google it instead of propagating some sort of rumor what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of new technologies coming out uh, that will actually help conserve wetlands and waterfowl hunters. There's a lot of, uh, I haven't tried them out, so I can't, you know, push on it, but uh, there's biodegradable wads and steel shot now that uh, look be pretty promising. Um, and we, I mentioned it before, there's tons of public ground uh, available to everybody. You might as well use it and it's not all bad. And if you don't know where it's at, get the powder hook app and then powder hook will show you exactly where to, to go find your next ducks. That's exactly right. That's that's like the third powder hook plug I've had. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And people are going to say, oh, I wonder if Ben's oh, yeah. affiliated. Yeah. <laughs> so good, man. Good. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate it a yeah. lot. And uh, if they want to, uh, what what what's your favorite thing that you've written? Written? Oh, yep. my gosh. Or, or worked on? Oh, wow. I don't know. The flagship of, of your <laughs> career, I guess, if people were going to go look up one thing uh, about you. I don't know. Um don't have a flagship in my career. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Any of my Minnesota work, I guess, would be pretty cool. Any of your Minnesota work, yeah. yeah. I am, uh, I don't know how I missed it, but I am going to go back and find something about this, uh, the cattails. Yeah. I'm going to go read into that. That yep. seems a little scary. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> cool. But, all right. Well, hey, thanks a lot. Yep, you bet. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.